0: Dr. Molly Malouf is on a mission to radically extend health span and maximize human potential using scientific wellness, health technology, and health optimization medicine. Her fascination with innovation permeates her concierge medical practice that is focused on providing personalized medicine to entrepreneurs, technology executives, and investors in Silicon Valley. She is an MD from the Illinois College of Medicine and is a lecturer at Stanford University. For today's podcast, we're going to talk about a complex topic, one which we discussed in our special revitalized podcast a few weeks ago, drugs. More specifically, do drugs have a place in wellness? So please keep in mind that some of the drugs we're going to talk about are illegal federally and you could be arrested. Also know that dosing is difficult to assess and there's an unregulated black market which is extraordinarily dangerous. Always, always talk to your doctor about use and use these drugs at your own risk. People have adverse events. You have to be cautious. There are serious risks. With that being said, here to dive into this very complicated topic of drugs and wellness, Dr. Molly Maloof. Molly, welcome.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: It is so good to have you back.
1: It's so great to be here.
0: So going back, To Revitalize, which we released as a podcast a few weeks ago, I'm going to go back to the first question I asked you and our other esteemed panelists at Revitalize. The interest in LSD, psilocybin, Mm -hmm. ayahuasca, MDMA, ketamine, marijuana has boomed over the past decade. So yes or no, do these mind-altering drugs have a place in wellness?
1: I am here in New York, and I was really astonished by just how many people in this city have a local shaman that they turn to for (laughs) their experiences. (laughs) And I've been so focused on the above ground work with maps and trying to figure out um, if there's a place for psychedelics in medical and clinical medicine. But I've been really pleasantly surprised at just how many people are being really thoughtful about the way that they um, enter what's called ceremony. And so I would say that just from my own perspectives of observing observing the world and the communities of people that are participating in these things, I think that there's undeniably a role for psychedelics and wellness. And it's happening right now, whether we like it or not. And what I'm trying to figure out is what's going to happen in the next five years, because there's the underground world and there's the above ground world. And then I don't know what the regulators are thinking about. I I can't read their minds. I don't know if the underground world is going to be surpassed by the above-ground world. Um,
0: So how about this? (laughs) Can we go drug by drug? Because I know these are all very different. Sure. So let's start at the top Yeah. with the the one, if I were to rank these in terms of potential (laughs) damage, so to speak, Right. Um, and I answered no at Revitalize, but people can go back and listen to that podcast um, LSD.
1: Sure. Um, pretty well known substance to, um, and, and if you haven't read about the history of this substance, you really should learn about it because it's fascinating. And I would say that most people who have ever experienced it notice there's significant enhancement in creative thought. And so you can make connections that you wouldn't otherwise be able to make without the medicine. So it's a powerful tool for creative Explorations, so creative outputs. It's particularly um, popular in Silicon Valley in the designers world, people who are using their creative minds in a productive way. So a lot of people are microdosing LSD for that reason. And again, I can't condone this because I am a clinician. I can't say that people should do this. In fact, like that's just not allowed, but I'm what I can comment on is what I'm seeing in the world right now.
0: What does the science say?
1: Um, the science is frankly fairly limited because... It isn't being easily studied because the government makes it really hard for people to study it. But there's plenty of things that we talked about around psychedelics and the default mode network and how it enhances, um, it basically lifts this filter that we've naturally got on our brains to keep us from taking in all of the sensory experiences that we are getting all at once. If we lift this filter, we see far more information than we can typically handle and what lsd does is it lifts that filter and enables you to see far more sensory input internally and externally
0: so if it's used to enhance creativity what else can it be used for in terms of like therapeutic benefit
1: um in terms of therapeutic benefit it's being it's it's probably the least being it's the least studied for therapy right right. now Um, most of the research is in psilocybin is in MDMA, is in ketamine, and a lot less so in ayahuasca and LSD.
0: And so for LSD, who should like definitely not take LSD?
1: Anyone with a history of psychosis or psychotic disorders, anyone who's ever had any tinge of psychosis as part of their depression, anyone who's been bipolar, I just wouldn't recommend it. Because it can, I mean, anyone who's ever done a psychedelic knows that there is a level of crazy that you will experience by being under the... being under the drug. So I would say if you have ever experienced those conditions, be very, very careful with it. And or if
0: it runs in your family.
1: Oh, yes, of course. Yes.
0: So we'll go to the next one. Psilocybin. I finally got the pronunciation right. I right, struggled you with that for a while.
1: <laughs> um, this is a, a fascinating tool specifically for end-of-life anxiety. I have friends right now that are, you know, that are dealing with this specific problem right now. And i have found in, in my own experience of witnessing people's transformations it does indeed help with this and it's being studied at johns hopkins um, it's being studied at nyu for a variety of reasons also being studied under um for for priests are, are taking this to induce mystical experiences and to study mystical experiences and so it's a very reliable tool for that
0: so this one's studied mm-hmm. again like what what should it not be used for? Who should not take it? If we, li- I want to look at the pros and yeah, cons of each yeah. one, and because I think there's a general feeling which you touched on is everyone's yeah. so excited in wellness. Yeah. But also, there needs to be a little bit of a warning label with some of these.
1: Yeah, I mean, so first of all, the thing that people do wrong with most psychedelics, first and foremost, is because it is largely underground still, and because most people aren't getting into clinical studies, it's being distributed by. Either sh- local shamans or pushers or drug drug dealers, right? And so the problem with with mushrooms is that it's a it's a it's like a plant, it's a fungi, right? So because of that, it's hard to know how strong it is unless you try it, right? So I think that um, anyone who's inexperienced with psychedelics should be really careful with dosing, and always do the smallest amount that you could possibly do, and not a giant dose of anything because. Frankly, it's kind of like um, training wheels. You shouldn't be, you shouldn't be like flying an airplane before you've learned to drive a car or ride a bike. <laughs> and so people are blasting off in these like really high doses, and and damage can be done in those spaces. So I would say that um, definitely, if you again have those histories of significant psychosis in your family or in yourself, don't try it. But then also, if you don't have a strong grounding in reality, and maybe you are having like. Um, maybe you're going through a really tough time in your life. Be really careful with these medicines because they can help you with growth. But if you're do- if you're doing them alone, if you're doing them without any therapy attached, they can kind of spin you off into outer space, and that's not healthy for people. Mm-hmm. Especially if you're doing it at a party with a bunch of strangers, where you can get paranoid, or maybe at Burning Man, where you're in the desert and you're under the influence of the elements, like not not healthy for people. So I, I would say, err on the side of caution and be and take far less than you think you would ever need because these are powerful tools and they they shouldn't be abused
0: the next one on the psychedelic list Mm -hmm. ayahuasca
1: Mm. so ayahuasca is probably my least favorite psychedelic even and yet i meet people every day who just swear by it and what I find really fascinating about ayahuasca is that there's actually tribes in the Amazon that take this every Sunday for their church, and they give it to children, and they, like, integrate it into their culture, and they even use it recreationally. And in these populations of, um, of Indians, they have almost no depression documented. So I think it's a really powerful tool for connecting people with community and connecting people with themselves and with their ancestors. But again, it's always about who you're gonna sit with because A, the medicine is hard to predict what it's gonna do, where it's from. B, there's a lot of physical side effects of this. Not only do people purge by vomiting, but people have been known to um, like, (laughs) this is so gross, but some people even wear diapers because of accidents that can happen. So because of the physical um, nature of this, you you want to be with a group of people you're really comfortable with and you really want to trust a shaman that you work with. And then you also don't want to just hop on a plane and go to Peru and just like pick the, the you know the, the shaman that's sitting outside the airport. Because I, as I mentioned um, at my Body Green's conference, you really want to choose a shaman like you would a neurosurgeon and really know and trust them so that you don't end up hurting yourself or end up um, in a place where you're deeply challenged and you're not being held. So that's what I would recommend there. And And again, like it's a physically demanding um, medicine. Part of the value of the experience is actually in the preparation. So the dieta is the nutrition, is the behaviors, is the is the meditation, it's the media cleansing. It's all the things that you do beforehand that really optimize for the experience. And I have found personally that not doing the dieta leads to nothing happening
0: so can, can we talk about bad trips though mm-hmm. what, what exactly is a bad trip and then what happens yeah and when does it go really bad like just yeah. what happens in the brain
1: well typically the conditions that create a bad trip are both internal and external and the, and the big ones that we've always kind of known out and known about are set and setting so it's Where are you in the world having this experience? Do you have any possible chance of having to pretend like you're not high? (laughs) Because if you have to go in front of like an authority figure and you're in the middle of, you know, a festival or something, and you have to pretend like you're not on a psychedelic, that is extremely paranoia inducing. So typically when people have a bad trip, it's because they were put in a position where paranoia was set off. Um, they thought they were going to get caught. that they were going to get arrested, and they were in a fear-based state. And fear, in a, in this in this experience, is like a great a great trigger for a bad trip. The second is is feeling unsafe or feeling unsupported. People who do psychedelics alone, maybe in the wilderness, you know, you can you can really hurt yourself if you're not careful. So it's always best to be cautious with where you do this, who you do this with. Preferably not doing these things alone. And then also like where were you in your life? Like, are you in an extremely challenging place in your life? Maybe this isn't the right the right the right thing for you at that moment. Maybe what you need is therapy. Maybe what you need is community and connection. And and so when people do psychedelics in an unsupported way, it can throw you off into outer space and then you feel totally disassociated with reality. And in that situation, especially in the possibility of ego death, you can feel you can feel very much detached from reality, and that can be frightening. You can also feel very detached from yourself if you take too big of a dose. So bad trips typically happen in the wrong location with the wrong people, feeling either unsafe or feeling um, threatened, feeling like you might be arrested. And, and then maybe in your, you're in a place in your life that's really challenging and you're not being well-supported.
0: What about the feeling like, is this ever going to end? Yeah. Or I want it to stop.
1: Totally. Um, that typically will happen if you're on a heavy dose of a psychedelic that you maybe weren't prepared for. Maybe you didn't know the dose you were taking. Maybe you weren't cautious and like took a small dose. Maybe someone pushed something on you and you took something that you didn't even know if it was, what it was. It's another thing people don't talk about, which is that a lot of these things are being bought on the dark web and you don't know the quality. And so I don't care who your dealer is. Like, you, At the end of the day, until we have a clinical environment where we can prescribe these in a clinical setting, you are taking risks. And those risks are why these are so highly um, regulated by the DEA. Because the DEA and the government doesn't want people to hurt themselves. And there were a lot of casualties of the 60s. Sure. You know, there were. everybody knows somebody whose life has been altered in a negative way from psychedelics who will never touch them again because of that. Yeah
0: sure i had a bad trip in college
1: mm-hmm. and it, it was
0: just i had no idea what, how much it was or whatever yeah. but it, okay, we're all so it. It was all in. It and you yeah. know just like too much and parts of it were great and then part of it was like all right i'm done
1: and and let's also <laughs> yeah i mean that's also let's also talk about two two other things first of all because this isn't being delivered with the context of a physician um there is no off switch in the in the, in the world of you know recreational psychedelics so Typically if you were a doctor just delivering a medicine and there was a bad side effect you could give someone a sedative like valium sure right but th- people don't do that in the in, in the you know in the world of recreational um psychedelics so like you might be stuck for 12 hours high and that would really be awful that would suck yeah <laughs> you know and not everybody has a zendo tent to turn to right At burning man there's a place called zendo where people having bad trips can go and work through them with trained sitters which i think is fabulous but um, some people don't have that support system, and so you can—it can be really frightening to feel like, "Oh my God, I'm in a—I'm in a constant loop that's never going to end. What if, I, what if I'm here forever?" That typically is the, the the fear. Some doctors consider bad trips to be opportunities for growth and learning, but I would say that that's probably with the caveat if you had someone to help you w- with that process.
0: So, what about we'll, we'll segue to the next mm-hmm. group? So we've got MDMA next.
1: Sure. Well, MDMA is particularly interesting right now because it's being considered as a breakthrough therapy for PTSD. So post-traumatic stress disorder doesn't have a lot of well-established evidence-based methods of of helping people. The traditional things are things like EMDR or cognitive behavioral therapy, but even these don't have outstanding efficacy and so when the fda had, had reviewed maps research can you talk about maps for a second sure. just explain to people so maps is an organization called the multidisciplinary association of psychedelic studies and they um it was founded by this man rick doblin who has made it his mission to bring psychedelic medicine to um, the forefront of of clinical medicine and mdma assisted as a therapy has been studied for um helping people recover from uh, significant traumatic experiences that have that that might be affecting their lives many many years after they've um, they've had the experiences. So, in particular, people like veterans, people the victims of tra- traumas, um, turn, have been turning to this medicine in the clinical research space, and they've had outstanding advocacy. So, the FDA is actually trying to help MAPS get this approved, but again, um, it, it's very unclear how long it's going to take. It could take like two years. Maybe, maybe longer, um, but I'm, I'm particularly excited about that because you know when there isn't right. right the FDA has made it really easy to bring drugs um, to market for rare diseases um, through this fast track process, and so it's. I think it's important to recognize that the FDA really does want to want things to come to light that actually work, and and it does seem like the evidence is suggesting that MDMA is particularly effective for this. Um, but remember, the MDMA assisted therapy with maps is not just you go into a clinic and you get a seven hour session and you're done. (laughs) It's an extremely in depth lifestyle program that involves a significant amount of preparation, a deep intake process. Um, You have this experience. You actually spend the night at the location where you have the experience. You are watched. And on top of that, you are given many, many, many hours of integration, which I think is the true magic is combining The medication and the experience with the integration and the preparation. And those combined seem to be what's making it so effective. And what's problematic about a lot of the recreational world is people sort of going into their ayahuasca ceremonies, getting their fix, and then getting back into their lives and then forgetting everything they learned. So at the end of the day, you have to integrate. Otherwise, you're just, you know, like, for example, ketamine. If you're just going into a clinic and getting your IV ketamine, you're just getting numb to your depression, and you're just disassociating yourself from your, your depression. And maybe, you're, maybe, maybe your depression is being somewhat alleviated, and maybe you're not going to kill yourself, but at the end of the day, you're not digging into why you're so depressed. And so that's mm-hmm. why integration is everything, and that's why we need to build systems that enable clinicians and therapists to work together to deliver these extensive lifestyle programs that are in-depth and that get to the root of these people's problems.
0: So you mentioned ketamine. Where is ketamine effective? Depression?
1: Very effective in depression, and particularly depression with suicidality, which is killing so many people in our country. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but um, the life expectancy of Americans is declining. Mm-hmm. In particular, um, white men and middle-class individuals, for for example, there's just there's just a bunch of research on people turning to opioids for their pain and opioids will numb you but they will also suppress your respiratory system. So what's happened is that ketamine is is starting to replace the opioid epidemic and l- fortunately or unfortunately it is i I mean I would say a lesser evil, but it's but if it's if you're just going into a clinic and getting your fix, you're not dealing with your problems. So yes, of course it's going to save some people's lives and yes, it will keep them from killing themselves, but we have to make people's lives better. We can't just we can't just get people off the precipice. We have to bring them into, you know, um, human flourishing, preferably.
0: And so the last one, you know, we're in New York. You walk mm-hmm. through the park. There's someone smoking weed. Marijuana yeah, everywhere. Yeah.
1: Marijuana is so interesting. Um, so I was listening to another podcast by Andrew Weil today um, on Ben and Greenfield. And he was talking about how... Marijuana was like the, the, the dog of the plant kingdom and how it co-evolved with humans. <laughs> and, um, and so cannabis is fascinating in particular because it's not just THC, but it's all these cannabinoids that have psychoactivity. And I'm actually, personally, I believe that CBD is psychoactive and THC gets all the reputation for this. But to me, um, the whole plant has psychoactive properties. I mean, essential oils are psychoactive. You know, you can be relaxed from lavender. You can sleep better from lavender. Um, they're not mind altering. No, they're not going to make you trip per se, unless you consume a lot of mugwort. But <laughs> um, THC definitely is mind altering. But I, I would say that the level of relaxation you can get from a heavy dose of CBDs, it, and the way that you, the way that it can alleviate anxiety, it definitely affects the mind for sure. But THC, you know, I find it really interesting. Um, I'm always trying to figure out what's the lesser evil to what people are using recreationally for, you know, altering their minds. And, and to me, alcohol is this numbing agent of the masses, and cigarettes are. People are generally fig- figured out that cigarettes are, you know, a great dopamine hit, but they're terrible for your health. And so if everyone's kind of like, oh yeah, we we get that cigarettes are bad, but um, but marijuana is is now becoming fairly acceptable, and um, and I think we're going to see a lot of people have psychological addictions to it. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that it's definitely got its risks, but it's not gonna cause you to become physically addicted. You're not gonna die if you go off of it like alcohol. Delirium tremens will kill you if you're an alcoholic. So I think we need I think we need to decriminalize it completely federally and I think we need to regulate it significantly. And we need to make sure we don't get let teens take too much of it. Well
0: that's the big thing. What is it done what does it do to the developing brain? It's not bad. good. It's, it's, it's terrible it's just
1: a really bad idea to smoke pot if you're a teenager. And like
0: Teenagers, are you listening?
1: I mean, just don't do it. Like, (laughs) look, if you, like, teens are... It's not good
0: to trip either if you're a teen. Like, the developing brain is something you should not mess around with. You really
1: shouldn't. And, I mean, the the thing is, is, like, what I would tell a young person is if you want to have an edge over the competition and you want to keep your brain as sharp as possible for as long as possible, work on your lifestyle habits in high school. (laughs) Prepare yourself for college. And, like, you will have an advantage over your peers. You will get into a better school. You will have a better, brighter career path. Like... I would tell this to myself if I were younger. Um, I didn't do drugs in high school personally, and I was I was very focused on, um, on getting into the best school I could get into, becoming a doctor. But I did drink occasionally, and I think that alcohol is is very damaging to the to the, to the teenage brain too. So I would I would say teenagers have a, a hard time right now though because they're more stressed out than ever. Um, students are more have more anxiety than ever before. Gen Z is the most anxious population, and, and from what I've heard from speaking to people is that. There's so much competition now. I, I really I worry for them, and I think that it's they're probably at the biggest risk for um, adopting these habits. I mean, there's that new show Euphoria on HBO. Yeah, I'm all afraid to watch it. I am too.
0: We have two little girls. I'm like, I don't want to watch this.
1: I mean, the best thing you can do as a teen is to like learn to take care of yourself and like really read mind body green articles. And like <laughs> honestly, I'm, I'm not just plugging it for a reason. Like we're lucky I didn't have mind body green when I was in high school. So I was just biohacking myself, trying to figure out what supplements did. And I was doing all sorts of experiments when I was a teenager that probably weren't that safe. Turns out I turned out okay. But like <laughs> but looking back, it's really funny. I mean, like I took ephedra in high school. I remember seeing it sitting in class, like floating above my seat, being like, I'm high right now. What is going on? And I was like, Oh, it was the ephedra. Probably shouldn't take that. That that can't be good for me. <laughs> you know, and it's just like if I was doing that in high school, I don't even want to know what teenagers are doing. Yeah, you know.
0: Do I. So w- going back, when, when I first when I asked this question at Revitalize, you know, do mind altering drugs have a place in wellness? I was the only one in the panel who said no, and yeah. and my re- you know, in college I did everything, I tried everything, and so forth. But f- for me, wellness has been about going within,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and going inside for results and. And then you made a really interesting point because one of the things that came up at the panel was, okay, like meditation, breath work, all these amazing tools, diet, like going within and getting the answers are within. It's like this idea, like for me, wellness is about empowerment yeah, personally and going within and getting the tools. Mm-hmm. And you had this really interesting comment around Vipassana.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I was like,
0: wow, I'm thinking about this in a different way. So just fill yeah, people in. It yeah. sort of, ref- I-, I had like a wow moment, like maybe I'm thinking about this all wrong.
1: Sure. Well, I, one of the things that people don't realize through meditation is that meditation can induce a psychedelic experience. Meditation can also induce a psychotic breakdown. And, it, and there are actually plenty of articles written in mainstream media, if you just Google search, um, Vipassana and psychotic break, People get to the same top of the mountain that they would get to in a psychedelic trip through nine to ten days of meditation, and because of that, um, the the real risks are people who are unprepared, people who have had very little meditation training, and they go off and do, do a meditation retreat, and then they're just they're floating above their normal reality, and um, and and they can they can have a breakdown, and so I think that. Anytime you're going to alter your mind, whether it's through a, a plant, whether it's through a chemical, whether it's through a practice, holotropic through, breathing, holotropic yeah. I mean, I actually, I, I, I'm going to take back the bad trip comment. The one time I did have a bad trip, it was through a breathwork practice that I did on my own at home, and it was a, it was a holotropic type, type of breathwork. It wasn't Stan Groff's. It was through a, a an audio recording on a CD, and I ended up having, um, this reaction to it where. I think it was like a hypocalcemic tetany that can happen when you breathe off too much CO2 and you get um, this problem where your, your, your muscles start to contract. And it terrified me because I was like, I felt like I wasn't in control of my body um, at the time. And I remember thinking, oh my God, this is like the scariest thing and I'm all alone. What if I can't stop this? What if I'm going to like, what if I pass out? What if like, and all these things are going through my head. And that was just a breathwork practice. And so I actually, I hadn't even thought about it until this conversation, but that was many years ago. And I was just getting into this whole space of, um, you know, like breathwork and expanding, expanding my mind through different practices. And, um, and I'm actually about to do my first Vipassana next month. But um, and I am I am nervous about it. But you know I'm in a I'm in a place right now where um I feel I feel ready for it in a way. But you know people can also have um, awakening experiences without any anything preceding it, like kundalini awakenings, which sure. which I actually recently had um, a few weeks ago. That was like totally wild and totally out of the blue, and I was like, what is this? And it was totally. I mean, I I I think if I hadn't been aware of what it was, I might have thought that I was like lose my mind a little bit. Cause it was pretty powerful stuff.
0: So what advice do you have for people out there who are considering any of these mind altering substances? Sure. What are the questions they should be asking?
1: I mean, the first question is, is, um, I, I'm always going to return to this. The first question is, is do you have a strong sense of connection and love to yourself and to your community? Because, we're always seeking something and the real question is what are we seeking? What are we, what do you, what, why, what's the why underneath you're, you're seeking. And, um, and have you tapped all those resources first before you've gone to these other things? Have you just
0: skipped the therapist altogether. Yeah. So- you,
1: like a lot of people doubt modern therapy, but I think that, I mean, I think it's really powerful medicine. I think it's all about finding the right therapist, but are you, are you in a supportive relationship with an objective figure who can help, be a like someone who can be a sounding board for you. Um, because fly it's kind of like having a co-pilot. You don't really want to fly a plane by yourself if you don't have training. And so it's always important to have a teacher or a therapist or or somebody that you can talk to about your experience because you don't want to um, you don't want to crash plane.
0: And, and generally would you say at least my view tell me if this is accurate you should consider other things before you jump straight to psilocybin. Oh, yeah. You should, there, it's not like we're going straight there. I'm going straight to MD. All my, oh, my problems gosh. are going to be solved. Like I'm depressed. You, I'm going yeah. straight to ketamine. Yeah. Uh,
1: I think, I think you need to exhaust other resources before this is the thing you turn to because this is powerful medicine and this is like. This is medicine that you, if you are going to pursue it, you want to be really careful with it. And um, and 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 largely, a lot of the times why people do pursue these things clinically is because they have failed a lot of other therapies. Ketamine, in particular, for depression, is specifically prescribed for people who failed two or more um, mainstream psych- psychiatric drugs. So it's like a okay, you've already failed these other drugs, now you're going to try this. That makes sense to me. Yes. Um, somebody who's suffering from end of life anxiety should certainly be talking to a therapist and not just turning to psilocybin. They should certainly right. have a support system in place. For for LSD, you know, like, should that be the first pathway for creative uh, problem solving? No. no. Read like, the artist's way first. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> sure. Read the artist's way. Maybe go, like, go take a trip to somewhere else in the world and go do some travel to get some inspiration. Um, you know, pick up some art supplies. Right. <laughs> um, and MDMA, like... Uh, for PTSD, like you really should, you know, you try should try meditation. You should try, try meditation. You try try EMDR. Try cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, you know, th- try the mainstream stuff first because they do have longer. Um, they they've got they have been around for longer. People have been using them for longer in the mainstream. Um, but then, but the key is is that like recognizing that there's a bunch of tools and toolbox, and this you should always pursue the things that are safest first, and then pursue the things that. Okay, you've, you've exhausted all the safe things, and then also pursue like I think I think a lot of people are still fairly isolated. People are living alone. People are lonely. People are disconnected. You know, pursue turning off your your Instagram. Pursue <laughs> detaching from your media, and like literally go out and make friends. Like that is a powerful medicine, you know, and like human connection. I actually think that a lot of why people are pursuing these ceremonies underground. Is because of the community that people are creating around these ceremonies. Like, right. people are going into these these ceremonies with shamans and they are like connecting with a bunch of like-minded individuals in an almost ritualistic manner that reminds you of something you would see in you know in in, um, in ancient cultures. So I think that there's something to be said about even pursuing sound healing, going to doing something like that. Like, sound healing is powerful medicine, and it's like if you've even tried that, then like do that before you do these things. I love that. You know.
0: So you're in the center of everything in the valley. You work with a lot of high performing executives, <laughs> yeah. to say the least. Yeah. What does biohacking look like out there these days? What are people doing? What's legit? Sure. What's a little crazy?
1: Yeah. I mean, I can speak to what I do a little bit and I can talk about what else is out there. Um, so like a few years ago, like, you know, when I first got into this space, biohacking was a response to people not being able to get what they wanted through the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. Because the healthcare system wasn't wasn't letting you order labs every quarter. They weren't giving you prescription supplements for optimizing your health. They um, They weren't doing things that were designed for improving health and human flourishing and performance. So people were having to go outside of the system and go online to like laboratory purveyors and going around to like Biohacking experts like Ben Greenfield and listening to his type of podcast, or going to like people like the Bulletproof Exec, you know Dave Asprey. People were returning to these these individuals who are saying we weren't served by the system, we had to fix ourselves through our own means. So we, you know, we we are now biohackers per se. And so now, in the last six years, there's just been a massive explosion of biohacking and biohacking websites and biohacking conferences and. Biohacking startups and you name it, it exists. And so um, I've always felt really strongly that we've needed to take really healthcare from a sickness billing industrial complex to a system that creates health. And by health, I mean the ability to adapt and self manage in the face of adversity. So I look at biohacking as an opportunity for people to go beyond healthcare and beyond sickness billing, and beyond just waiting till you're broken, and saying, how can we prevent, predict um, disease, and how can we identify the earliest markers of disease, somewhat like the Lee Hood and Nathan Price systems biology approach, the P4 medicine approach, and bring tools that have been used in mainstream medicine, but apply them to amplifying and and optimizing health. So what I do is I do um, a precision medicine approach to biohacking. I do genetics, I do metabolomics, I do clinical chemistry markers, I do hormone markers, I do microbiome testing, I do continuous blood glucose monitoring, I do um, activity monitoring, sleep monitoring, heart rate variability monitoring, and I do a really long medical history that involves asking a person about their medical history, but also about the different functional status of different aspects of their health and their lives. So I have about 25 questionnaires that I go through with a person. I analyze their environment. I analyze their relationships. I analyze their spirituality. I analyze their psychosocial health. I analyze their metabolism, their fitness, their sleep, their nutrition, their digestion. And I'm looking at this pretty large picture of a person's life. And then I create custom compounded nutraceuticals and medicines to mitigate imbalances and then apply lifestyle medicine to help them think about different parts of their lives that need to change. And so it's the the way I've been describing it is almost couture medicine. It's like made-to-measure custom car that you're getting. Now, the future is actually software. And so the future is actually taking my system and turning it into a software program that other doctors can use. So that's one of the things that I'm working on right now. Um, I'm also really excited about continuous glucose monitoring because I think insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome is rampant. Mm -hmm. And it's a huge predictor of neurological dysfunction, depression, heart disease, diabetes, and dementia and cancer. So all these chronic lifestyle related diseases are largely rooted in um, inactivity, overeating, too much stress, lack of connection to oneself, one's community, university, ecology. And so I think... um, more and more and more I'm turning to understanding fundamentally how these parts of our lifestyle are affecting our mitochondria and how mitochondria health is like core to health itself. And so that's where my career has gone, but that's how I do what I do. That's my flavor on biohacking. Um, it's, It's really exciting to uh, right now, be a part of the entrepreneurship space because I have a ton of companies that I advise in the food and the beverage and the supplement and in the software space that are creating opportunities to take biohacking to like millions of people.
0: So, what do you find yourself finding with people yeah. mostly? Like, if you had to generalize, what are you seeing a lot of? What do you, sure. are there certain themes? Are there yeah. things you find yourself prescribing more often that are surprising? Mm-hmm. And then what are things where you see where like, oh man, like that's just crap. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's not, that's not real bio. You're being sold because there's so many, it's such a, there's a huge bucket of what people consider to be biohacking and there's some stuff that there's science behind and other stuff, which, eh, yeah, be a little developing.
1: I mean, I think, I think the, I'm very cautious about this world of stem cells right now. I think it's a little bit woo woo. Um, I think there's a lot of overpromising and underdelivering, and a lot of money being wasted. Um, I think that the there's like a, so the things that I see that are very surprising is just across the board, almost everybody has some sort of overt or subclinical nutritional deficiency because our diets, unfortunately, are even though they're improving, our food is um, being grown in soil that's got deficient minerals and vitamins, and so even if you have a super healthy diet. There's nutritional deficiencies, um, and that that throws off your metabolism, and that throws off your methylation cycle. So um, that's pretty common. I see um, a lot of undiagnosed invisible insulin resistance and postprandial blood sugar abnormalities. So a lot of people have normal blood sugar on labs, normal, quote-unquote, Normal hemoglobin A1c, normal fasting glucose, but then you put a glucose monitor on them and they're spiking all day long after meals, and that's not being checked by doctors because no one's getting a glucose tolerance test unless you're just unless you're a pregnant woman, and so um, the problem is is that there's 81 million undiagnosed pre-diabetics in the country, and that is literally setting people up for disease, for cancer, for heart disease, for diabetes. And we've been so obsessed with LDL, and we've totally ignored blood sugar. And blood sugar damages blood vessels. And postprandial blood sugar spikes, post meal blood sugar spikes, literally damage blood vessels more than anything. And so LDL has to come in and patch that up. And so I think that we are. Um, we are unfortunately in a, in a place where continuous blood glucose monitoring is still a medical device that's only prescribable and covered by insurance for people with diabetic diabetes right. type one or type two. And even if you have type two, you have to be a brittle diabetic to get it covered. So I'm very frustrated and very um, unhappy with the healthcare system because we should all be putting these on once a year minimum.
0: I couldn't even get heart disease runs in my family, so I get, I get labs every quarter. So yeah. like I couldn't even get my LPA covered. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. Like there was a great article in the New York Times Super by Oana O'Connor like LPA it's yeah. like the, it's a big it's huge. It's developing but like now no correlation and I'm like this is insane but that's that's the healthcare system.
1: One of the coolest things though I learned about LPA after having just been perplexed by how to fix this um is fasting. Fasting is one of the yeah. few things that actually improves LPA, and um, there's also this thing called the line, like the line, Linus Pauling protocol. It's like super high dose proline and vitamin C of all things, but it's expensive. Fasting is super cheap, so
0: it's a great it's a great biohack that doesn't cost anything.
1: Did you, the, honestly, the three biohacks that cost nothing that everyone should do more of are just running, just high intensity interval training. You have to work your way up to that. You need to be functionally able to do that. But just giving your body those spurts of high intensity cardio, It's what I do is I do a minute of sprints, a minute of rest, and I do that for 10 rounds that is a potent statement. 10 rounds is intense It's I, I worked up to that okay that's after like years of training of course so you have to work your way up even just one sprint is. it's It's all about that signal that you're sending your mitochondria I go fast
0: up the stairs is that good enough
1: that's something there
0: are four flights
1: that's something keep doing it now skip okay. a, skip stairs next time you know I can do it it's all about challenging your metabolism and setting the signals to, to the mitochondria that you need to make more because mitochondria are the power plants and the signal transducers and the actually funnily enough they're the flux capacitors of our cells <laughs> so everyone always Laughs when I say that because it's it's actually true. So they're they are largely responsible for our ability to have enough power to maintain the integrity of our bodies, and that is it's like a it's like if you don't have enough mitochondria, your building starts breaking down. So I'm all about mitochondrial health, and so biogenesis is stimulated by high intensity interval training, but then um, also weightlifting will do that. But then um, mitophagy, which is throwing out the bad batteries, is stimulated by fasting. So to me. A few sprints here and there, and a few fasts here and there, you're going to see your health improve. The unfortunate thing is, you have to condition yourself up to both of those. So you can't just start with like my regimens. You have to work your way up, starting with things like 12 to 14 hours of fasting, and then eventually things like 16. And then when you're really comfortable and you're insulin sensitive, you can tr- you can start challenging yourself with more. But it's all about kind of like tr- cross training your metabolism. But these are free. Fasting's free. Fitness is free. Anyone can go outside. And then nature. I mean, going to a park, just being exposed to green space is nourishing for your mind. And we don't have enough of it in our lives.
0: I agree. So you mentioned women earlier. Yeah. Let's talk about women and biohacking. How do women different than men?
1: Well, we have this thing called menstruation, unfortunately, and it turns out that throughout the month uh, as a woman, you have to deal with all of these changes with your estrogen rising and then falling and then your progesterone slowly rising. And those changes lead to all sorts of personality changes and mood changes and energy changes. And because of that, you got to be careful with how um, how you challenge your system. So some of the things that can happen to women who overdo it on the ketogenic dieting, who overdo it on the Um, high intensity CrossFit who overdo it on the fasting is that they can send their body into a survival mode where they will prioritize survival over reproduction and they will delay or stop their period. And that is not ideal for a fertile woman. So you really want to do a good job tracking your periods with the apps like Clue or apps like Glow. And you want to make sure that you are listening to your body and you are not overstressing your body. You have only so much stress you can fill your cup with. And first and foremost, we have work-related stress. We have commuting stress. We have noise pollution. We have the stress of um, just interacting with people every day. So like, be careful with how much stress you fill your cup so it doesn't overflow. And use these metabolic stressors, which are good for conditioning your system, use them carefully. And it's like you want to give your body just enough stress that you can give the stimulus to say, OK, I'm going to try to make you stronger, but not so much that you don't recover. So it's kind of like um, you don't want to overtrain, you know? Right. So yeah. what's
0: what's a day in the life for you in terms of sleep, sure. nutrition, what do you eat, supplements, yeah. et cetera?
1: Okay. So sleep is like probably the most important thing I think that I prioritize, and yet I don't think about it because it's so it's so dialed. And it was the first thing that I started optimizing because I feel like if I don't sleep well, then everything else is downhill. Um, My metabolism's thrown off, I don't have as much energy, so I always make sure I get to bed and get eight hours of sleep. Um, If I don't dream or if I have nightmares, that's a signal that something in my life needs to change. Um, (laughs) If I wake up in the morning anxious, there's a signal something in my life needs to be addressed. So use sleep as a diagnostic tool about the health of your life. If your sleep is bad, something needs to be looked at. In the last month, I've started to be pretty diligent around exercise, infrared sauna, and cold showers because I'm really interested in mitochondrial biogenesis and mitophagy. So everything I'm doing is relating to optimizing mitochondrial health. And those are all very, very powerful tools for mitochondrial health. Um, so I like to do I like to get that out of the way early in the morning. Also sunlight. Um, I really like to get a nice beam of sunlight in my eyes early in the morning because that sets off my circadian rhythms. And then if I can, I like to get some grounding in. Living in San Francisco is tricky because um, I live in a city, and so grounding isn't always easy, but I do try to be at least barefoot at least once, but that doesn't always happen. Um, I'm, about to, I'm actually about to get some grounding shoes for this reason because I think that that's kind of useful. Um, so those are the morning, and then I get ready. And as I'm getting ready, I'm usually listening to a podcast, taking my supplements, my supplements currently um, are designed to do two things. One is replete some nutrients. Turns out, um, people don't think about this, but I went largely plant-based for the last couple months. And unfortunately, I, I actually had some nutritional deficiencies to pop up. And um, I'm not saying that plant-based diet's cause nutritional deficiencies, but I am saying that if you are on a plant-based diet, you should certainly be testing your micro- micronutrients. I was deficient in selenium. I was below optimal for vitamin D. That's largely because I, I live a lot of time indoors. Um, in San
0: Francisco in the summer.
1: Turns out that it's just... Coldest winter ever, Yeah, right? you, just, you, just, you just never get enough vitamin D. Um, so I was deficient in a few vitamins. Um, B12 was a little deficient, so I had to replete that. And then I take a bunch of supplements for, for mitochondrial biogenesis. I'm like super obsessed with this company called Guided Clarity. That's a brand new company. They've got a fasting mimicking supplement. Hmm. So it's it's just fabulous. Um, Usually I'm, so I do fast pretty consistently throughout the year, but the level of intensity of fasting that I'll be doing is depending on the level of stress in my life. So there was a period of time in the last year that I was doing a significant amount of fasting. I was doing every other day 36 hour fast for two months. I felt like I regenerated my body. I looked younger than ever. It was like my skin was bright and beaming. Then I started teaching at Stanford, and my, um, my, my stress levels were rising, and so my fasting diminished. So I stopped fasting for a couple months. Now I'm getting back into it, and right now I'm doing three – 24 hour fasts a week right now and it's really not that hard to do I'm if I it's it seems like it's so hard but it's actually not that hard and I feel like that's easy for me to do without having to resort to like overeating afterwards um I did a three-day fast I try to do that every quarter recently but my my morning usually involves some form of coffee I just tested my omega-6s. They were a little too high, so I've got to cut out the almond milk, cut out the macadamia milk, got to cut all the nut milks. That's where you it
0: comes from, huh?
1: I do. Consu- I was over-consuming. Um, because I eat fairly low-carb, I was over-consuming the nuts and seeds. I don't eat a lot of vegetable oil. So, so you can
0: have, that makes sense.
1: You can have two. I had a good omega-3 level, but my omega-6s were too high. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that actually made me even more sensitive to sun. If your omega-6s are too high, you can end up with um, sun burning easily. So I've got to drop the omega-6s, got to drop the nuts and seeds. I got to lower the fat. I got to actually raise some of the fiber and the carbs. So I'm, I'm always adjusting my nutrition based off of my labs. So I'll eat breakfast or lunch in the morning, you know, typically like it's always, it's like, it's definitely changes depending on my lab. So I'm actually going to be adding a bit more meat back into my diet, not a lot of red meat, but I'm going to be adding wild game and wild fish back and probably like an occasional poultry or lamb but mostly just because my labs were super, super, super low in methionine. And that might be good for longevity, but not great for methylation. And so I'm just adding a little bit of meat back, not a ton, maybe one meal a day. I'll probably be doing vegan till six. And then I usually have meetings with startups or I have meetings with clients. Um, I have a very wonderful life in that I don't have, I don't necessarily have the same thing every day. Um, some days are full on research admin where I'm just digging into literature, catching up on email working on projects but um i I usually have a few days a week that's deep work and a few days a week that's interacting with people
0: so what are if you had to generalize i I know precision nutrition is not about generalization Mm -hmm. but if you had to generalize like what do you think are some underrated foods or foods that everyone should probably be eating more
1: of well, it all depends on where you live in the world, and frankly, we have um, a lot of toxicity in our environment. I just discovered my xylene levels are high, so I've been flying a lot, and I've also been getting my nails done a lot, and I'm like, oh, where does xylene come from? Turns out it's from like chemicals in the environment. So. Because we live in a toxic world, we could all be detoxing more. I love milk thistle for this. I think almost everybody who lives in a city should be on milk thistle, because <laughs> we're just all exposed to so many toxins in a city, um, and it's just a great liver to- liver detoxifier. I would also say that everyone's got to cut back on the sugar. It's just one of those things that like we all need to do more of. We You have to constantly remind people, but sugar and, and white flour are very p- problematic for most people you know, most people are deficient in vitamin D. Um, even if you live in a sunny environment, I still see it in people who surf in LA. I can't completely explain it. I think there's actually some issues with metabolism in our bodies and the way that we're living today. There's, I haven't completely cracked the code, but I see vitamin D deficiency all the time. Making sure you combine that with vitamin vitamin K1, K2. Um, look at the end of the day, like I, I wish I could say universally there is one diet that everyone should consume, but it turns out it just it really depends on your health status. If you have autoimmunity, you're not going to do well on a vegan diet. I'm sorry. You're probably going to need to do an autoimmune paleo diet. You're going to have to do a bit more animal products. The, but what we should be doing is still, look, everyone can eat less. Like everyone can eat less. This is the thing that I can recommend across the board. If everyone fasted occasionally, we could reduce... The amount of food we consume, we could even, we could reduce the amount of food waste that we have. So whether you're a vegan or a keto person, fasting, everyone should be doing, not only for spiritual reasons, not only for physical health reasons, but for the health of our planet. We should all be, We should not be overeating so much. We don't need the portions that we're consuming. We're eating too much food, and we're producing too much food, and we're throwing away too much food. And so everyone should probably be thinking about the level of consumption. Another thing that's really simple about nutrition that people don't think about is people don't preserve their food properly. Like the ancient forms of preservation are still really important, things like fermentation, things like putting your plants in a gla- glass of water. Like if you buy basil, put it in a glass of water, put your herbs in water, put your, put your romaine in water. Like water your plants, they'll last longer in your fridge. Make sure that you get reusable bags that you can store your plants and your greens in. But there's little things you can do, like wrapping your greens in, um, in some, you know, damp biodegradable paper, like paper towels. Uh, putting those in a bag and preserving the food that you do buy, really, really caring about the food you consume and not wasting things. Mm-hmm. I mean, I lived in Mexico in college, and you didn't waste a darn thing. People ate food a lot longer past its expiration <laughs> date, and I and I didn't get sick. Um, you know, aside from alcohol <laughs> so um that was back in college but you know i think we could all have a, a lot more reverence to the food we do consume and stop throwing so much away
0: i love that so last question w- what do you think the future of wellness is going to look like and say a year from mm. now what are we going to be talking about
1: wow okay well i think we've i think we're all waking up to food and i think food is transforming and i'm stoked about that and i think that like that's a that's a movement that's not going anywhere. We're only going to see more and more food companies make it easier and easier for people to get food. But what I do, and I have been saying for many years is that we need a platform for food prescriptions for chronically ill people, because the cause of the disease is the food that we're eating and the lack of movement we've got. So we need to prescribe gyms. We need to prescribe meditation. We need to prescribe yoga. We need to prescribe food. And this needs to be covered by insurance. If we want to curb the tide of chronic lifestyle-related diseases, then we need to pay people for doing the things that that will keep them out of the hospital if we want people to not get sick. So I'm stoked about new types of bundle payment programs through new systems that are enabling at least for the for the beginning, like VA people and Medicare people, um, and even you know, dual eligibles, Medicaid individuals getting the care they need that are that that really is not just preventive, but therapeutic. So I think the future of wellness is actually like clinically, this is prescribable and paid for. That's my dream, and that's the vision I want to see. Um, I, I feel like it's it's totally possible. and I think that there's there's no reason why entrepreneurs can't make money off of this. And so I've actually ta- been talking to entrepreneurs. and there are people that are like, that are getting um, wearables covered for uh, monitoring elderly. And they're doing this billing code that's remote patient monitoring. So I think that remote patient monitoring is going to extend itself into all sorts of different uh, different things, that it's going to move a lot of care out of the hospital into people's lives. And so I think that there's actually momentum in this space of wellness becoming medicine.
0: I love it. Amen to that. Let's close there. Molly, thank you so much.
1: Thank you.